wrap up Ecclesiastes, and I feel like Solomon does a really good job of kind of bringing conclusion to this. In some ways, we get kind of a crash course on Ecclesiastes, a little bit of a summary of where we've been already, uh, but he's going to kind of pull everything together and then kind of give us his final word today. So let's jump in. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We are going to pick it up in verse 8. In verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You pray with me. God, thank you for this book, uh, the many ways in which it pulls us towards you. It intends to lay us bare, to show us that everything in this world is not what we are looking for. And so I pray, God, in this one last time as we look at the preacher at Solomon's words that you would drive down deep into our hearts that what we need what we are looking for is Jesus so help us to see once again how everything else will leave us empty will leave us disappointed so God have sway in these moments we will not learn we will not trust we will not grow unless your spirit moves in us so God come and rest heavy on us in these moments do powerful work of transformation that I cannot do with my mere words. So God, have your way for your glory and for our joy. Amen. All right. So Solomon, the preacher here, in verse 8, he says, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. As I read that, uh, I found it oddly comforting that Solomon is saying this again, that he is ending where he began 12 chapters ago. And I think for, I hope for all of us that, that as you read this, as you hear this, that something in your spirit resonates with this. Ah, I needed to hear this one more time. I need to be reminded of this again. All is vanity. So, what Solomon is doing here is, is a literary device known as an inclusio. So he stated this at the beginning of the book. Now he's stating it again at the end. So it bookends the book. And by doing this, he's emphasizing the importance. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This is a major theme throughout the book. So he began in chapter 1. By seeing this in creation, he said there, we mentioned this last week, but also, again, or again, the sun rises and the sun goes down. So it comes up, it goes back down, it just keeps happening over and over, day after day. He says the wind blows, around and around goes the wind. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. All these things are happening within creation, and yet they are not bringing ultimate fulfillment. The sea, or, or the waters run, but it never fills up the sea completely. And he's saying all of these things in creation, they're pointing to this greater spiritual reality. We cannot find what we're looking for in these created things. We have to look elsewhere. And so he concludes in chapter 1, he says, All things are full of weariness. What has been is what will be. There is nothing new under the sun. And now Solomon, at the end of his life, he's just giving to us again what he has learned throughout his life. He has sought pleasure in many ways. He sought it in food and drink, 
He sought it in laughter. He sought it in the work that he did. He sought it by trying to accumulate many possessions. And he was a king who had tons of money. So he accumulated many things, but still that didn't do it. He sought it in sex as well. He says, I kept my heart from no pleasure, from no pleasure. Everything that he wanted, he had. He said he saw something and he would say, that is mine. He would take it. And he said, all is vanity. He even sought to live wisely throughout his life. But still, as he was seeking to live wisely, what he learned throughout his life is that the wise man is buried next to the foolish man. And he looks and he sees in every vein of life, vanity. Everything is futile. And this is where he wants us to get. He keeps stating this over and over, giving all of these examples throughout the book because he wants to lay us bare. He wants us to see every part of life, every aspect, every adventure you go on, everything you pursue after, you will not find what you are looking for in that thing. So we talked about earlier in our series, without God, everything is vain. Without God, everything is vain. Then he goes in verse 9, so I mentioned, I mentioned this throughout the series, but the author of Ecclesiastes historically has been thought to be King Solomon, who was the son of King David. King David is known as kind of the, the most well-known, the greatest king in the history of Israel. Now Solomon, he's also known to have written the book of Proverbs, which is a bunch of wisdom sayings. So he was known as a wise man, and, and part of him being known as a wise man was because early in his life, he asked God, God, God said, ask for anything you wish. And the thing that he asked for was not riches, not women, but at this point in his life, what he asked for was wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. So even though he made many foolish decisions throughout his life, he always had this supernatural wisdom. So he had great wisdom. And he shared that wisdom with others. At least that's what he's doing here in the book of Ecclesiastes. But also as he wrote the book of Proverbs as well. So with great care, he studied and he learned about life. And at times, he sought to hoard things for himself. But there are other times, like right now as we're reading this, he's not seeking to hoard things for himself. He's seeking to share what he's learned with others. And this is a gospel principle that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. You are blessed to be a blessing. He was blessed with wisdom so that he could bless others with the wisdom that he was given. And we find this in the gospel, where it really ties in with the gospel is, in the book of 1 John, we learn there that we love others because God first loved us. So none of us wakes up one day and says, I'm going to go find God. If we do that, we do that because God has first come to us. He's awakened us in some way. He's opened our eyes. He's drawing us to himself. So there are ways in which we can, so non-Christians can love people. So I'm not saying non-Christians don't love people. But what the Bible says is when a non-Christian, when someone, or even a Christian who's not trusting Jesus in that moment, when they are seeking to love somebody, they are doing that in a broken, fractured way. That there is some selfish motivation behind what they are doing. Still hoping to get something for themselves out of that. We love others when we see how Jesus has first loved us. How, how sacrificial he loved us. How vast his love was that is how we are then when our heart is transformed by that reality then we are able to love others and and this is simply what's going on with solomon he is sharing wisdom with others because god has come to him and he has given him this supernatural gift of wisdom and then verse 10 
I think it captures this idea of what Solomon's trying to do. It says that Solomon pursued words of delight. Words of delight. Now think about this book that we've been reading, the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't think many of us would, would think of all that Solomon's saying and be like, oh yeah, those are words of delight, right? Like, it's so cheery and happy. Everything is vain, right? Like that, those just don't seem to go together. So typically, when we would hear someone make this assertion, all is vanity, what, what we would think, probably at least what I would think, is, man, that person needs a nap or a coffee, right? Or just a hug. Like, come here, I, let me give you a hug. Like, life isn't this bad. Not everything is vanity. But here we find Solomon asserting this statement that all is vanity and that these words are intended to bring delight. This book, as morose or morbid as many people might feel it is, is intended to bring to delight to God's people. So how, how is that? How is a book like this that many people look at and say, man, there's a lot of despair, hopelessness in there. How is it intended to bring about delight? And the short answer is what Solomon is doing is he's seeking to lead us away from vain things by showing us that they're vain so that we would go to something better, so that we would go to God himself. Because God is a good, kind, and gracious God we live in a world filled with pleasure. There's pleasure all around us. Things that we taste, the smells that we smell, feelings that we have, things that we see, sounds that we hear, beautiful music. There is pleasure absolutely everywhere. There are delightful, enjoyable things that surround us. And, and I'm a broken record on this reality. The delight that we see all around us, that we experience on a daily basis, is it, what makes it delightful is the fact that it's connected to God. It, it's intended to move us ultimately to Him. When we divorce the pleasure from God, then we're just going to use it selfishly. We're going to try and find as much life in it, and then we're going to discard it because we're done with that thing. But this reality that delight in a thing is directly connected to God is something that we forget all the time. We love the pleasurable things, those things in the world that are temporary, that will not last, that cannot ultimately give us what we're looking for. And 1 John 2 says something about these things and the world. It says there, do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the world is filled with God's good gifts. But what the world wants to do is it wants to take those things, it wants to use them, and abuse them to suck the life out of them. We, we just take it for what it is and then be done with it. And God wants us to receive those good gifts so that we would be reminded over and over of his goodness. So when we take those things and we just use them selfishly, what 1 John 2 is saying is that we are opposing God. In some way, we are seeking to be God ourselves. And, and so friendship with the world in abusing God's stuff, it, it says in the book of James that it's actually enmity against God. The world is God's enemy. So don't love the perversion of the good things that God gives to us. God gives us these things for our enjoyment. Don't idolize the thing that he gives. Don't make it too important. And, and so how this all ties back into what Solomon is saying the world is filled with vanity. So Solomon's words are a delight to us because they're a helpful warning for us. What Solomon is trying to do is he's trying to save us from pain, from, 
having to learn lessons the hard way, the way that he had to learn lessons. And, and so he goes on in verse 11, and he says there that words, like Solomon speaks in Ecclesiastes, that they are like a goad. Now, many of us, we probably don't know what a goad is, or maybe from context we might be able to figure it out. But a goad is a staff that a shepherd would carry around in those days. And when an animal would disobey or wander, the shepherd would use that goad to, to redirect the animal back to safety. Now, my understanding, this wasn't an abusive thing. It was just a stick that's used to say, hey, you're wandering off here. Slap, slap the animal, move them back into line where they need to be, back into safety. So the point was inflict a little bit of pain so that the animal would be spared a much greater pain. I think we see this in parenting. Children are given a small amount of pain when they don't listen to authority so that they can learn to listen. So if, if I tell my kids to pick up your clothes and day after day they never do it and, and so I end up like 13 times a day I'm like, son, pick up your clothes and he just never does it unless I ask him 13 times and then he finally does it. I, if I train him in that way to listen to me, the day when he's, let's say, as a four-year-old, okay, so maybe a young kid's not picking up their clothes at three or four, right? But, but think of a child at four, right? If, if my child is running through the yard towards the road and I say, stop, I want my child to have learned at that point to stop because I see the car coming down the road. I see the danger that is there. And so I want to utilize things to help teach my children to inflict a small amount of pain early on so I can save them large amounts of pain later in life. And this is what Solomon is seeking to do. Ultimately, he says, we need to hear the words of the one good shepherd. And so if we're, we're New Testament people, so we're, we've moved beyond the Old Covenant, Ten Commandments, and we're now people on this side of the cross. The one good shepherd, when we hear that, the one good shepherd is Jesus. We need to know Jesus' instructions for those who follow him. Jesus' words are the words that really matter in our lives. For, for those of us who are Christians, those are the words that should carry the most weight in our daily lives. So not Brene Brown, okay? Not Kirk Cousins, not Taylor Swift. The, those, and I'm not saying, like, you can't know the words, all right? You can't benefit from those words. But Jesus' words are the words that should carry the most weight in our lives. And it shouldn't even be close. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And if you look at that closely, uh, one way that you can read that is, I am the way to truth and life. But Jesus says this about himself. He's saying, you won't find truth outside of Jesus. You won't find life outside of Jesus. Now, what this is saying is that Every time there is a scientific discovery that is fact and it's true, in some way it is revealing things about God. We are learning more about who Jesus is. The Bible says all truth is God's truth, okay? So anytime that we discover things, we discover truth, in some way we are learning about God. So there's no other place that we can go to to find truth, that we can go to to find life. Those things are found only in Jesus. There's no other way for us to find salvation. Salvation is found only in and through Jesus. We must go to him. We must know his words, which means we must open up the Bible. We can't know his words if we don't open up the Bible. So we must know his words. 
but not just know it because if all we do is know his words, we're like someone who looks in a mirror, we know what we look like, and that's it, okay? Those words need to shape us in some way. They have to inform us. And so we need to not only know the words, but we need to listen to the words as well. So Solomon is giving a needed caution here. We have this tendency to think highly of certain personalities or dignitaries or people that we respect. And Solomon goes on in these verses and he says, he tells the reader to not put misplaced hope in authors or in ideas that are not Jesus or from Jesus. He's essentially saying, beware of books. Beware of books. Now, there's a lot of good things in books, okay? But he's saying, beware of books. And I would say, beware of secular books and beware of Christian books as well. We can learn from everything. But we need discernment as we go about this process. The Enneagram might be a good tool, but it is not the gospel. So the gospel can inform the Enneagram, but we don't take the Enneagram as just pure gospel. Um, some of you people, uh, some of you may have heard of a book that's come out. It's, it's become a really popular book, um, and it's more for women, but it's, it's a book called Girl, Wash Your Face. Um, it, the author is very funny. It's very engaging. She's a really good writer. But the reality is when you read in chapter one of this book, you are meant to be the hero of your own story. You should pump the brakes right there. What is that telling me? Because that does not line up with what the Bible tells me, that Jesus is intended to be the hero of my story. And if you read through this book, what you're going to hear, you need to save yourself. There's all these moralistic things that you can do to empower yourself, to make yourself better. The reality is moralism will not save us. It does not work. It's only Jesus. But there are millions of books like this book that have many more ideas. And Solomon is saying, be careful that what you read and consume and you believe is not in contradiction to Jesus. I, I wore this shirt uh, for this very reason this morning. So this, some of you have asked me, what is that? So the TGC stands for an organization called the Gospel Coalition. And it's, it's a loose group of individuals who care deeply about the gospel. They put out a ton of articles. Uh, they have guys who do blogs and they do videos and so forth. I, I align with them in a lot of ways. I really, I've benefited greatly from a lot of things that they have put out. I appreciate them. I read an article this past week uh, that was on the Gospel Coalition and it made me want to throw my computer against across the room because what was being communicated in this article I think is immensely damaging to people as they live the Christian life. And, and this isn't just a theological hobby horse for me. What, part of my anger in this was this is going to do great damage to people who read this. They are going to think that the Christian life is something different than, the than believing the gospel. Which is funny that an organization called the Gospel Coalition, in trying to promote the gospel, they are actually working against it. But this is why my call to all of us, myself included, when we are reading things, we must rely on God's Spirit. Because that, it was just a poor job of exegesis. Uh, exegesis of understanding, interpreting the Bible. Is, is what this person was doing. And so, what Solomon is saying is be wary of consuming many books. I, I heard recently that there's been like 130 or like 140 million books that have been produced throughout the history of the world. Now, it's a, it's a hard thing to measure, but that's a ballpark number that I heard. There's no shortage of things to read, right? But what Solomon is calling us to is to know Jesus' words. 
to know what he has instructed us to do. And as you read other books, be very, very careful. Jesus must be the answer because all these books that are out there, Christian and non-Christian, they're going to teach us that satisfaction in life is found inside of us, in us working hard, in us cleaning ourselves up. If you just, that you just need to be you. You just need to work hard enough to maximize yourself, to dream bigger, to stop thinking negative thoughts, to do you, and in that you will actualize what God desires for you. And it's a bunch of cursed lies. It's a bunch of cursed lies. Life is not found inside of you. Life is found outside of you in the person and work of Jesus Christ and only him. All right, lastly, verses 13 and 14. We come to Solomon's closing comments. He says, the end of the matter. This is the summation of all that Solomon has learned, all that he is wanting to teach us. And it's summed up in this phrase, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. Oftentimes when we hear this, many of us, especially when we're thinking Old Testament, we think, man, God is just this angry old dude that's got a bunch of rules for me. But if we look at the whole of the Bible, this is not who God is. And so that's not merely what's being communicated here as Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments. Now, there are many things that we fear. Or we could also say there are many things that we honor. But God oftentimes is not one of them or is not at the top of the list. I don't know about you, but I think there are times when it's easy to feel inoculated to the greatness of God. That, that it just doesn't have weight. We, we just don't see the glory of who God is, of his goodness. It's as though the experience of life, those things that we can see and taste and touch, that they can rival God, that what's right in front of us, the things that we see right here, are captivating. And so we get stuck on those things. And Solomon is saying, this is dangerous. But this is the trap that we will fall into if we are not intentional in seeing God for who he is. Because Solomon is saying, I have spent my life experiencing. I have experienced everything, things that all of us would dream to experience, or at least we would think we would dream to experience them. And he says, I found it all vain. And his conclusion then is, this is why we need to fear God. Another way that we might say this expression of fearing God is to live in such a way that there is a God. Live day by day as though there is a God. Because I think the reality is many of us can walk through our days as functional atheists. Meaning, we might remember God for a few seconds before a meal. We might remember God if we quickly pray with our kids before we go to bed. But the rest of the day, we don't think about it. We just do our own thing. We're just on autopilot. It's a functional atheist. It's not this ongoing dependence of God and his spirit. One reason that Solomon says to live in such a way that there is a God, he says there's judgment coming. Everything that we do, all that we walk into and out of, we are going to be judged for that. Now, as Solomon says, fear God, this creates a problem for us, okay? Because what Solomon is calling us to do is to acknowledge that there is an authority over us. And I don't know if you have noticed this, but that's an issue that many people have today. I don't want to have authority, especially if you fall into the category of a millennial. Millennials are very suspicious of authority. And oftentimes with very good reason. 
but God sets himself up here as an ultimate authority. And so we all need to ask, why should we trust God? Because we look out uh, along the landscape of our nation or, or this world, and what we see are we see a bunch of authority figures who are greedy, that are egotistical, that are abusive, and power-hungry. And the tendency then is to project that onto God, right? And to think that all authority is corrupted. But God is nothing like that. God is nothing like that. The authority that God claims, for one, makes other authority figures look pathetic. The authority that God claims makes other authority figures look pathetic. Like, so I can say, well, I have authority in my family, right? But God's not saying that he has authority just over my family. Or someone might say I have an authority over an organization. I have an authority over a nation, someone might say. But God, God is saying I have authority over all of it. I am unrivaled. My authority is immeasurable. So what he's doing is he's setting himself up and over and apart from every other authority. He's saying any authority, any person who claims authority, it is tiny. It is nothing compared to my authority. And any authority that any person claims is derived from me anyways. So he's setting himself apart in a massive way. Furthermore, his exercise of authority is altogether otherworldly. So this comes back to why should we trust him? God exercises his authority in an intriguing and a unique way. God exercises his authority by sending his son, Jesus, to go and live amongst the very people who are seeking God's power, that are trying to steal God's power from him, all the while knowing, sending his son, that these same people have already perverted power and will try and take power from his son. And so some of us might think, well, that's his downfall then, this authority figure God, is that he doesn't know how to wisely use his power. But Jesus, that's, that's not the case at all. Jesus comes to these people like yourself and myself, sinners like us, and he does this unthinkable thing. He's God, he possesses all authority, and what he does when he comes is he sets aside his authority. He sets aside his authority, which is very curious. But he doesn't set aside this, uh, his authority as though he's abdicating responsibility. Okay? He's not just being lazy here and saying, oh, I'm just going to kind of kick back and go on vacation when I go to earth. He's not shirking his assignment by setting aside his authority. He sets aside his authority so that he can save humanity. He sees that this is the only, he understands this is the only way that you and I can be saved. So these same people that will attempt, you and I, as we attempt to assert authority, Roman soldiers, Jewish people, as they sought to assert their authority, what happens when they do that is they ultimately end up killing God. And in the process, they are destroying themselves as well. They're destroying themselves. And I think this is so instructive for us. First of all, we need to acknowledge that authority cannot be avoided. It can't be avoided. There is always going to be authority. This is how God has designed the world that there will always be authority. And he is saying that it, all, it, that it starts with him. But when we set ourselves up as against God and his authority, we will, others will destroy themselves and those around them as well. And God, what he's doing as he comes to earth is he's setting himself against this way of doing things. He is not abusive. In the same way that we see many authority, authority figures abuse power, he is not abusive. In fact, he takes the abuse upon himself because of love. So he's not abusive 
he is love. He's not greedy. It's already all his, right? And so anything that you and I have already is something that God has given to us. So he's not claiming authority so that he can have more, so that he can gain more. He's already got all of it, and he's sharing it with us. His exercise of authority is done in such a way to save. And the reason we can know that we can trust his authority is because he's willing to give it away for your good. And there's no other way for you and I to be saved other than he gives his authority away and is killed for us. That's good news. That's the gospel. This is why Solomon says, fear God. Why he's telling us, revere God. Worship God, because there is no authority like him. So trust him. So when we hear fear God, what we as New Testament people should hear is trust Jesus. Fear God is trusting Jesus. And that's how we live in light of the fact that there is a God. But part of this, then, if we are going to trust Jesus, is that we would do so by obeying God's commandments. Now, in the Old Testament, God gave his people commands. Okay? He gave them ten commands. He, he didn't give those to his people to restrict their freedom, but to provide a framework by which they would be truly happy. This is how they would flourish. If they would obey these commands, then they would know God's blessing. But what happens is God gave these commands to a man named Moses who was up on a mountain. Before Mo Mount, or Moses got down from the mountain, they'd already broken the commands. Right? They're in the process of breaking the commands as he's walking down. And he gets down, and the commands were written on two stone tablets, and he throws the stone tablets and they break because everything's broken. Everything's fractured because of sin. The good news for us today is that we are not called to obey the Ten Commandments. When Jesus came, he perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments. And we read in the Gospel of Matthew that he fulfilled them. He fulfilled them. So we, we cannot, by obeying the Ten Commandments, fulfill them because Jesus has already done that. Are we going to add to something Jesus has already done? We will not. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 8, it says that Jesus made the Ten Commandments obsolete. He made all of the Old Testament, all of the Old Covenant obsolete. That doesn't mean it's meaningless, but that we, it, it doesn't have authority over us. So the Ten Commandments do not have authority over us. So, the question is, then, what, what is God's command to us? What is God's command to us? 1 John 3.23 And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. God's command to you is that you would believe the gospel. That's his command to you and I tendency for us is to put so much emphasis on doing religious things. I'm not saying those things are bad, but this is most important. Believing the gospel. Trusting in Jesus. We must continually wrestle with what the gospel says about us and about God. Why did Jesus have to go to those lengths? Because we are unbelievably wicked. Because we are absolutely ravaged by sin. He had to die. His blood had to be spilled for us. And what does it say about him that he would go all the way to death? It says that he loves us with an infinite love, with an everlasting love, with a steadfast love. And we must continually wrestle with this 
remind ourselves of this. Remember who Jesus is and who we are. This is how we believe the gospel. Give ourselves over to Jesus in this. And then, as we believe, as we put first importance on the gospel and on believing the gospel, what happens then is we will be shaped by it. And when we believe the gospel and are shaped by it, we'll begin to obey those other instructions that we find all throughout the New Testament. So one of those New Testament instructions or ways that we will be shaped as we believe is go therefore and make disciples. Matthew 28, 19, God gives us instructions to his followers before he goes to be with his father. Go and make disciples. This activity is a natural result of believing the gospel. Making disciples is a logical result of believing the gospel. When you realize what you have been saved from, hell, death, wrath, when you realize that Jesus saves you from that, when you conceive of what Jesus has endured and all that he's gone through because he loves you, when you understand that he went to the ultimate degree, he was killed for you, he was killed for your rebellion against him, when you understand the length to which Jesus has gone to for you because he loved you and you had no other hope, it will move you to make disciples. When you understand how wicked your heart really is, that you will continuously seek selfishness. My wife and I were just talking this week. We were, it basically became confession like, oh, I said this thing and she said this thing and all, oh, but it, this is the real thing that was going on in my heart. And, and we were just, at this point, we were just chuckling at it, but at the same time, we are like, man, we, our hearts still, though we are considered God's friend and saved by him, we are still fighting and wrestling with this wickedness within us. We can't beat it. Jesus does. And that's why there's this continual call, believe the gospel. Because in those moments, we're believing in ourselves. When you are blown away by the beauty and the hope that is found in Jesus, and only in Jesus, when you see people all around you looking for what you have, you notice this? Everyone in life is chasing after something. They're chasing after joy, after satisfaction, fulfillment. They are chasing after the gospel in wrong places. They are chasing after things that will continue to disappoint them. They are chasing after things that they have chased after for 10 years and have continually left them dissatisfied. And they are still chasing after those things. And you and I know the insanity of this because we do it too. We continually run to things that disappoint us instead of running to the gospel. When you understand that your joy depends on it, you will make disciples. Jesus has not instructed us to make disciples, to make us scared, to embarrass us. He has instructed us to make disciples because that is how we will experience great joy. When we see other people experience what we have experienced, we will explode with joy. A and maybe part of the reason that we don't make disciples is because we don't see the gospel as that good of news. Because maybe we've got some moralism sprinkled in. Maybe Jesus did this first part, but now I'm adding on to it. That's not the gospel. Jesus does all of it. You do none of it. You earn nothing. You, you deserve nothing at all, which makes the gospel so good because Jesus does everything. He does what we cannot, cannot do. And when we are given a gift, an eternal ultimate gift that we can't earn, that we can't purchase, that we can't manufacture, 
the result of this is thankfulness. And when we are thankful, we will want to share. We will want to make disciples with others. When you hear the one that you fear and worship saying, this is the best news in the world, and those people around you need to hear it, you will be compelled to make disciples. You will be concerned for others. Concerned, truly concerned for others. You will seek their rescue. You will join Jesus on his mission. The tendency is to say, these are the things I like. This is the life I want. That is your mission. Jesus calls us to join him on his mission. So as we believe the gospel, a natural result is that we will make disciples. This is why one of our core values is mission. Because the gospel, it creates community and it compels mission. It does. And if we're not compelled to mission, then we should take a good hard look at our hearts because we're believing in something other than the gospel. Okay, two quick points of gospel application before we leave today. This world is filled with vanity. Vanity in books, vanity in pleasures. As Solomon has told us, all is vanity is a delightful word because it leads us to the most delightful word, the gospel. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. All is vanity is a delightful word because it leads us to grace. The hope of the world. It leads us to Jesus and there is no better place for us to be where we can be bursting with hope when we're surrounded by vanity. Secondly, when we understand that all is vanity and we're moved towards the gospel, then the call is to trust Jesus, to fear God, and to make life all about him, to obey his commands, and to join him on his mission, to care that people around us are, are not just not trusting in Jesus, but that they're heading to hell. That, that it's not just an abstract idea, that, that it's not just like a fable or a fairy tale, like people around us are heading to hell. But, but not even that. People are lonely. People are scared. They need a friend. They need someone to care for them. And so the question for us in this is, who is authoritative? in our life is it you is it jesus how is jesus shaping you is it uncomfortable does it push you is it hard because if it's not if it's just comfortable you are the authority jesus will move you into places you never thought you could go he will compel you to do things that you'll look back and say i never would have done that five years ago, ten years ago. Part of my concern in pushing on this is that we have this danger and this tendency to be like Pharisees. That we can honor God with our lips. We can come here and we can sing songs. We can raise our hands. We can leave here. We can say a prayer before a meal. We can honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. And God wants your heart. He wants to draw you near to him so that you would have the fullness of life. He is the way to life. He is the way to truth. He is what you need. And Jesus wants the best for you. And he knows it's found only in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness. The fact that that you are good, that you are loving, and that you are faithful. Praise you. 
for who you are and what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do as well. God, as we sing these songs, as we respond by observing and celebrating what Jesus has done on the cross, would you remind us of our need for you, that you must be our authority. God, press in on our hearts. Show us who you are. Show us that all these other things in this world are vain, that without God, everything is vain, but with God, everything has meaning. You give life to everything. You redeem everything. You put back together that which is broken. So God, help us to see that we are a broken people who needs to be put back together by you. And then as you put us back together, that we would be moved by your power to share this story with others. So that your gospel would advance. So that others would know the joy of trusting in you. That they could walk all the days of their lives with hope. Not wondering what will happen tomorrow. What, what lays ahead for them they can know Jesus has their future secured. So God, stir us, move us, change us. In your great name I pray. Amen. I'm going to take a few moments to uh, respond in song and by observing the Lord's Supper, by reflecting on how Jesus is trustworthy. So take some time to examine your hearts pray with others, to confess your sins to God, to others. We want to invite you while the worship team plays uh, to go to the back table if you're a Christian and take the bread and the cup which signified Jesus' beaten body and his shed blood for your sin. And, and in this, be reminded of how Jesus proves his trustworthiness as he hangs on the cross for your sin. You guys stand, let's sing together.